Hello and welcome to the Family Planning Files, a podcast from the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning. The National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning is one of the training centers funded through the Office of Population Affairs to provide programming to enhance the knowledge of Title X and other family planning staff. I'm your host, Katherine Acheson. In today's podcast, part of our May 2021 Clinician Cafe, we'll be discussing how hypertension can affect reproductive health, including maternal mortality and morbidity. Our guest today is Karen Florio, DOMPH. Dr. Florio is a board-certified maternal fetal medicine specialist in the Kansas City area, assistant program director of the Maternal Fetal Medicine Fellowship at the University of Missouri Kansas City School of Medicine and chair-elect of the Missouri Perinatal Mortality Review Committee. She received her DO from the New York College of Osteopathic Medicine and MPH from George Washington University. Dr. Florio completed her residency in obstetrics and gynecology at New York Methodist Hospital and a fellowship in maternal fetal medicine at McGee Women's Hospital. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Florio. We're so excited to have you on today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. To start with, as your maternal fetal medicine specialist, can you outline how hypertension affects pregnancy from conception to delivery? Yeah, so I think you really do have to divide it out from conception to delivery. So if you're taking a pregnant person who comes into pregnancy who has underlying hypertension, right off the bat, they are at increased risk for having something called superimposed preeclampsia. And that's a big, long, fancy term for having preeclampsia on top of your chronic hypertension. And like I said, that's about a 30% risk. So that's significantly higher than the baseline risk of 8 to 10%. Preeclampsia is a high blood pressure disorder of pregnancy. You can't have it when you're not pregnant, and it kind of goes away, if you will, once the pregnancy is done. And I say that with a little tongue-in-cheek because because we know now that the effects of preeclampsia, even though it's a disease exclusive to pregnancy, those effects can be lifelong. What does maternal mortality and morbidity from hypertension and related causes look like today in the U.S. in terms of numbers and epidemiology? Yeah, that's a great question, Catherine. So as you alluded to, I sit on the Pregnancy Associated Mortality Review Committee, also known as PAMR, for the state of Missouri. And I've sat on that committee since 2019, and I am the chair-elect. And so I have the opportunity to work with an amazing bunch of people throughout the state to look at the root causes of maternal deaths in the state of Missouri. And so interestingly, we didn't know that maternal mortality was really a problem until about 2000. 2016. And there's a lot of theories as to why this kind of flew under the radar. Part of the reason is probably that not until 2003 was it mandated that we had to have a pregnancy checkbox on the death certificate. So as you know, even though things can be mandated, they're not always implemented in a timely fashion. And so really not until 2016 did every state implement and mandate that pregnancy checkbox. And so after that was happening, we started capturing more and more women who were dying while pregnant or within the 365 days post-delivery. And so this was brought to the forefront in the public health field because we noted that compared to our counterparts in Europe, such as England, who has a maternal mortality rate around five per 100,000, the United States sits anywhere, depending on the year, uh, between 25 and 35. And so each state is different, as you can imagine, because we each have very unique healthcare delivery systems when it comes to Medicaid or pregnancy care. And so Missouri, we published our first official perinatal mortality review committee report 
for 2017 last summer. And so what we found is very similar to what's been going on across the country is that if you talk about deaths related to the pregnancy, meaning if you had not been pregnant, you would not have died. During the pregnancy itself, pregnancy-related mortality is due to hypertension, number one in the state of Missouri. And that's significant because now we know not only is cardiovascular disease killing women throughout their lifespan, it's also killing women in pregnancy. And so that was a significant finding for us here in Missouri and across the country because people didn't realize that cardiovascular disease also significantly affects pregnant people. And while cardiovascular disease and hypertension affecting pregnancy is obviously a huge issue, most women don't spend their entire lives pregnant. So how can hypertension affect women's sexual and reproductive health outside of pregnancy? So kind of as I alluded to, you know, when I started my training, and I'm not going to date myself on that, but it's been a hot second. You know, I remember being taught that preeclampsia goes away when the pregnancy goes away. And nobody thought twice about it after the baby was out. But what we now know is there is significant risk developing preeclampsia in the postpartum period, and that can happen up to six weeks. And we know that women who have had preeclampsia have a significant risk, what we think is about ninefold, that the general population of having cardiovascular disease in the future. And that's important because if you put, let's say, Dr. Florio side by side, Dr. Florio pregnant, Dr. Florio not pregnant, and we move through life and the pregnancy, you know, during the pregnancy, I had preeclampsia, which I actually did. So this is not a untrue story. We know now that pregnant Dr. Florio who had preeclampsia will get hypertension at an earlier age, can die from a heart attack at an earlier age, can have a stroke at an earlier age, has such effects as high cholesterol, which are some of the things that I have now after having preeclampsia. So it can significantly affect the timing or the onset of cardiovascular disease in a woman's future health. While the very vast majority of Title X patients are women, our clinicians can and do see men every single day. What effects do hypertension and heart disease have on male reproductive health? So that's a really good question. So there's something called the Barker hypothesis. And so Dr. Barker was a pediatrician, and I think he only passed away several years ago, but he made an incredible contribution to obstetrics and gynecology, even being a pediatrician, because he hypothesized that the in utero environment, meaning what happens to us while we're inside our mothers, actually dictates what happens to us throughout our life. So Let's just take my son, Rocco, for instance. So he was born to a mom who had preeclampsia. And so now Rocco is at risk for having metabolic disorder and hypertension himself in his 20s, 30s, and 40s. Not only that, studies are starting to point to is that Rocco is at risk for having his spouse or his partner of having preeclampsia. So we know that what happens to us while we're inside our mothers dictates our future health. And so in women who have preeclampsia, women who have fetal growth restriction, because we're starting to find out that there are several disease states that all come from the same etiology, meaning poor placental perfusion and poor placental implantation. So preeclampsia is one of those things. Growth restriction is one of those things. There's a disease called abruption where a placenta can detach from a woman's uterine wall early, and that can lead to massive hemorrhage. So those three things we know come from that poor placental perfusion and implantation, and that can lead to adverse health outcomes in that child's life over time. So moving from 
sort of this grand scheme of theory and talking about these effects and into the clinic. What should our clinicians and listeners keep in mind when seeing patients who are hypertensive or might be at risk when they seek sexual and reproductive health care? So I, let's start from the patient point of view, because I what I really love about medicine now is that patients can take control and advocate and be empowered about their own health care. And I think that's such a great thing now that patients are educated and they can speak to what they want out of their health care. And so from a patient perspective, I would say if you know you have underlying hypertension coming into the pregnancy, it would be really important to meet with a maternal fetal medicine specialist or your OBGYN prior to pregnancy to kind of lay out a plan of how you see this going and what you should expect. In those sessions, they're going to talk to you about maintaining good blood pressure control, some of the safe medications to use in pregnancy, and maybe even switching you to a medication that's safer in pregnancy than the one you're currently on. You can talk about, you know, healthy lifestyle and diet to get your hypertension down and then the use of baby aspirin in an upcoming pregnancy. So from a patient perspective, I think it's really important to get this information early on so that we're not behind the eight ball once a patient is pregnant. And then once you are pregnant, again, always advocating for your own health care. And so when you're pregnant, it's important to ask questions about what are the signs and symptoms I should look for for something that might be going wrong? How can I help you as my physician take better care of me? And that would include monitoring your blood pressure at home, you know, being educated on how to take a blood pressure. Those are really important things that a patient can do to alert their physician to maybe a climbing blood pressure. They can also learn about the signs and symptoms of preeclampsia, such as headaches or visual changes, and knowing that those things really can't appear until after 20 weeks. So I think from a patient perspective, knowledge is power. From a physician perspective, it's always really good to go and look at the new literature on hypertension and preeclampsia. Because as I said before, you know, when I started training, part of the diagnostic criteria was still swelling. So now that's changed significantly. We know that that's not part of diagnostic criteria for preeclampsia. We also know now that you don't necessarily have to have protein in your urine in order to have preeclampsia. So that's something that changed in 2013 with the new guidelines. So it's really important to be educated as a clinician and also listen to your patients, right? If a patient is telling you that they have a headache and they've been checking their blood pressure at home and they show you the numbers that are elevated, it's important to take that seriously. I always joke with my nurse practitioners and my colleagues about why are we monitoring blood pressure at home if we're not going to believe the patient, right? So taking a look at those is really important. And then maybe even admitting them for 24 hours for observation to see what are the blood pressure trends, because the natural history of preeclampsia is a spastic disorder, which by definition means you're going to catch it sometimes elevated and at other times you're not. So it's really important to get a good time frame on these patients and how their blood pressure is behaving. Let's say a clinician sees someone coming in for their sexual and reproductive health care. What are some solid pieces of advice or ways that a patient can address their hypertension kind of before it gets to that stage? So things like lifestyle or things that our clinicians can advise their patients about. Yeah, that's a really good question. So I think that Going into a pregnancy with all the knowledge, as I mentioned, is really important. So if you know you have hypertension, it's really good to talk to your doctor about a planned pregnancy. What can you do in the interim to make sure you have the most optimal outcome possible in a future pregnancy? And that would include, as we had talked about, diet and exercise. Interestingly, though, Catherine, let's say you have a patient who has a history of preeclampsia and now they have hypertension. 
all the diet ex- and exercise in the world is not going to get her risk down to baseline. So that risk stays with you even though you try and attempt to do lifestyle modification. So that's really important to understand. Other things that you want to talk about is what birth control is safe for me, right? So in hypertensive patients, you really want to avoid, if possible, any kind of contraception that has estrogen in it, because we know that that can increase your risk for things like clots and stroke. So those are the kind of things that are important to discuss with your healthcare provider when planning a future pregnancy. What type of birth control should I be on? What type of medicine should I be on that's safe for a future pregnancy? And what can I do to mitigate my risk as far as my hypertension? Well, this has been really interesting. And you've talked a lot about all this new information coming out. What places would you recommend for clinicians to look so they can stay on top of these changes and find more guidance about hypertension and reproductive health care? Right. So let me be clear that I'm not advocating for any one website, but some of the resources that I use are the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology is always up to date on the current recommendations for preeclampsia and hypertension in pregnancy. And you can go to ACOG.org to get that information. Their practice bulletins are published every month in the back of what we call the Green Journal. You can also find those online. So that's a really good resource for clinicians. Another good resource is the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine is publishing guidelines as well on hypertension and pregnancy. And then the American College of Family Practice, they also publish guidelines because we know that our family practice colleagues are instrumental in taking care of pregnant women, especially in the rural communities. And so they are publishing guidelines along with ACOG and SMFM regarding the care of patients with hypertension or preeclampsia in pregnancy. So those are all really good resources. And I always encourage my patients, so that's from a clinician standpoint. From a patient standpoint, you have to be very weary of Dr. Google, right? So you have to make sure that if you're looking for information, that it's good, solid information. So I always recommend things like WebMD, or if patients have access to up to date, it's a little bit medical jargony for them. But those are good resources as well. Well, this has been a very fascinating conversation with lots of great information, but unfortunately, our time is running a bit short. But before we go, Dr. Florio, what would you say is your top takeaway for Title 10 clinicians going forward? When it comes to preeclampsia, I think, you know, the the publications back in 2013 that changed the diagnostic criteria for severe preeclampsia are always really important to understand because that changes management. So if you haven't read the Hypertensive Task Force that was published in 2013 outlining the new guidelines for diagnostic criteria for preeclampsia, I would highly recommend that. I also think that the American Heart Association has been instrumental in publishing and supporting research on women with preeclampsia, so future cardiovascular risk for preeclampsia. So the American Heart Association has really good guidance on what to look for in women who have had a history of preeclampsia, HELP syndrome, growth restriction, and how to risk mitigate them throughout their lifetime. I think that that is really important to understand is that just because the pregnancy ends doesn't mean the risk goes away. And so that would be my biggest takeaway from this is that it's really important as family physicians, as cardiologists, as internal medicine physicians, as OBGYNs, we start asking people about their pregnancy history. Did they have a growth-restricted kiddo? Did they have that baby early? Did they have preeclampsia? And that will kind of key you into what kind of management they will need going forward. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Florio, and for sharing your time and expertise. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. 
For more content, including previous podcast episodes, search for The Family Planning Files or subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For a transcript of this episode, as well as other online learning activities and continuing education opportunities, please visit our website at www.ctcfp.org. You can also follow the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning social media on Twitter at nctcfp, all lowercase, and sign up for our monthly newsletter, Clinical Connections, on our website. This training is supported by DHHS grant number 5, FPTPA 006029-03-00. The contents of this podcast solely represent the views of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official positions of the Department of Health and Human Services, or DHHS, Office of the Assistant Secretary of Health, or OASH, or the Office of Population Affairs, or OPA. No official support or endorsement of DHHS, OASH, and or OPA for the opinions described in this podcast is intended or should be inferred. Theme music written by Dan Jones and performed by Dan Jones and the Squids. Other production support provided by the Collaborative to Advance Health Services at the University of Missouri-Kansas City School of Nursing and Health Studies. And finally, thank you to our listeners for tuning in today. We hope that you'll join us next time for another episode of The Family Planning Files. (laughs) 